with all the most kindness in your heart and trying to do your best job for everyone. And so no disparagement of any kind here, you may be unintentionally disempowering your team and coaching strategies can really help you focus on empowering them. Are your conversations with coworkers not going the way you want? We have got you covered. Welcome to a brand new episode of the Veterinary Business Success Show, part of the VEDEX Leaders Community Online. In each episode, we explore ideas and subjects you can use to manage your veterinary practice better and be a better leader. I am your resident asker of questions, Brendan Howard, and today the woman with the answers is former DVM360 head of content and now executive coach, Marnette Fowler with Sunroad Coaching and Consulting. She shares ways to transform your communication by listening better and asking better questions. But first, what the heck is coaching? Let's dive into how managing and leading is a different beast than coaching, but also how managers and leaders can learn a lot from the practice of coaching. I like this because I just asked you, like, there was a hot take I had. I'm like, should we go straight into the four practical pieces of communication advice that you're going to give Marnette? Or could we talk a little bit like big picture because you are an executive coach and that's in the intro that I will be recording after this. But people in the veterinary world, people call themselves leaders and bosses and managers and maybe even executives. But coaching just seems like this popular phrase right now. I don't think people really have a handle on what it means. So if someone thinks of themselves as a manager, but they don't think of themselves as a coach, where do those two little circles in the Venn diagram, where do they overlap, do you feel? Mm -hmm. So, well, I feel like there's a lot to unpack even. I know there's too much. I feel like we could do the entire (laughs) thing just on with the difference between managing and coaching and how they're similar and different. Yeah, but I'm going to plow in and then we'll see where we go. So coaching is a really specific field, right? Although relatively new compared to management or leadership, and it's kind of buzzy, as you said, like it gets bandied around a lot right now. I think there are a lot of managers who are doing a great job incorporating coaching techniques, though, into their management style. And I think that's super valuable. So I went and actually did coach certification. I'm a certified coach and I coach. And coaching, a coaching session has a lot of rules around it and ethics around it and things around it that as a manager every day using coaching strategies, you wouldn't adhere to for all kinds of reasons. But the strategies that coaching strategies that coaches use, I think are super valuable to managers. And as a manager, that's how I got interested in coaching as I started reading about how you could use coaching strategies as a manager. And the more I did it, the more it worked for me, the more I loved it, the more I'm like, I'm going to do this. This is what I'm going to (laughs) do. But as a manager, I found it extremely valuable. And it, I was in a place where I had some pieces of my management that were stuck. Like I can't get traction in this spot where I really think there's traction to be had. Did they feel bad or were you not growing? Well, probably both, right? Like, I wish I could get this thing to happen and I can't quite. What am I going to do about that? So, and I'm pretty professional growth minded, right? Like this this is something I care about and have always cared about. Otherwise, you don't probably wind up being an executive coach. 
So I went out and started doing some more reading. What's new in this area that I can learn from? And I fell into the coaching strategies. So somebody thinks of themselves as a manager. So the primary thing that says you're a manager is you have risen to a level in your organization slash veterinary practice. And now there are people who report to you and you have higher level responsibilities beyond just the day-to-day duties. Like maybe think about the strategy or maybe you help other people do their job. You've taken in more of those. Where would coaching, if people might just start be peeking over a horizon and saying, oh, I hear about this thing, coaching, how would that start to affect in some way how they are managing, how they are a manager? That's a great question. And the cheat is you've already given me, like there's literally, we're going to talk about one example, but if there were others. Yeah, no, there are others. So I think a place where there's, I mean, I think coaching is so great, right? That's where I'm struggling to decide where to start. But I think one place where coaching strategies can really help managers is in not taking back the work. So I think it's very tempting as a manager when someone brings you a problem to accidentally assume authority for the problem and sometimes even for executing the solution. And so if you're a manager who finds that you're running around all day answering questions for people and you're a bottleneck, then coaching solutions can really help you fix that. And it does a couple of things. I think it it is empowering to your team. So you may be, and this is all with all the most kindness in your heart and trying to do your best job for everyone. And so no disparagement of any kind here, you may be unintentionally disempowering your team and coaching strategies can really help you focus on empowering them so that they keep, keep the problem and solve the problem and feel capable of solving the problem and create their own solutions instead of relying on you to provide a solution. Our teams, and I've done all those things, by the way. I have unintentionally done all of those bad things. (laughs) You've been the bottleneck and you've, okay. I've been the bottleneck. I've unintentionally disempowered. It's always from a place of generosity of spirit and wanting to help. And also to be fair, under pressure, you know, my style under stress is to solve the problem. And we've been rewarded in our whole careers usually for having answers, having solutions and solving problems. And when you get to be a manager, it's easy to just continue to do those things as if you're a producer, but really the job has shifted and now you're supposed to be trying to help other people do those things. Yeah, And it feels very bad at first. Like it feels like maybe you're not doing your job or it feels like you're not contributing as much, or it, it feels like you're losing somehow mm, trying to put words around, right. But you're not leveraging your strengths, maybe doing what you're good at, but it's one of those, what got you here doesn't get you there kind of things. And I think we're going to see, we're going to talk the, the examples you're giving that are coming. I just see how every single one of them in some ways is, I could see somebody being nervous about trying it, fearful about what's going to happen if they try it with this person, worried it's going to blow up, worried the problem is we're moving, they're moving so fast in a practice hospital business. They're also scared that any slowdown is going to cause real problems. This will hurt people, animals, customers, staff members, if we slow down to do this. 
because I think the interesting thing about you can have four pieces of specific advice about having a conversation. You are, I feel like each one is slowing things down and changing a habit. I can feel how somebody has a habit of speaking one way and you are asking them to evaluate that, think about that, reflect on it, and then do something. It's just, it sounds scary. I know it's not. I'll spin the negative part. You can give the positive. It just sounds scary. These four recommendations you give for how to change the way you talk to people during difficult or emotional or fraught conversations. So fair. I think it's scary. (laughs) Okay. And this is, I mean, when I started doing these things, they were out of my comfort zone. I think anytime you're trying to change your communication patterns, it's uncomfortable because we all kind of run down a road on on the way that we talk to people. And it takes particular energy and focus to interrupt that cycle and do it differently. So I think it, I mean, I think it does take energy. I don't think these things are easy. I did find it uncomfortable. Anytime you're learning by the very definition, you are out of your comfort zone. So I would expect to be a little bit uncomfortable for a while. And it takes time to do it consistently. So, and then I still have date. I mean, I have been seriously practicing this now for quite a number of years and I still have days when it's particularly when I'm under pressure, time pressure, as you pointed out, is a place where I really, I fall out, right? And I start to tell again, (laughs) instead of ask. And it, it makes me so frustrated because I really work at this, right? And then under the right circumstances, I just fall off the wagon. Before we get into the actual suggestions, do you want people as they think about doing this, do you want them to think about this as a skill that they will learn and perfect so that they will speed up and become more efficient at this thing. First, you learn how to do a surgery and you're slow and you make lots of mistakes. And then you do more of those surgeries and you get better and you find ways that ways you like to work and ways you can cut corners safely and efficiently. And then you become maximum efficiency at this thing. Should they think about communication, these suggestions as that, or is it more that philosophy thing where you start doing this and you're never done. 50 years later, you're still not done. You're still messing up. There's still things you're doing wrong. How should they look at this? I'm going to say yes. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I mean, this is a set of skills that over time can be more habitual and take less energy. So it's much more my go-to than it used to be to go to a coaching response instead of a non-coaching style response. I do it every day. I do it all day long. I do it in so many situations where, I mean, when I started thinking about this, I would have one conversation a day where I'm like, oh, I'm really going to try and ask a question here. (laughs) Yes. Right. Instead of answering it just once today. And now that's my like more common communication strategy. And then to your point about philosophically, when are you perfect and done? Never, right? Like I just gave the example that I still, in certain circumstances, get impatient and forget that the other person has a better answer. That's kind of a perfect lead-in for your first tip, talking about impatience, because do you want to just tell 
let's just talk about them. What is your first suggestion? Someone is either noticed they're in a conversation that is difficult with a peer or a boss or a, a colleague below them, a, a subordinate. They either they know the conversation's going to be tough or it has suddenly become tough. What is your first suggestion for these things? So my first suggestion is pause. That's horrifying because in these emotional conversations, pause. (laughs) Pause. So, and it goes hand in hand with my third suggestion, which is probably getting now all mucky and out of order, but (laughs) ask more questions is on the list too. And it's partly, I mean, I'm thinking of pause in two contexts, right? So one is if you start to notice, which good job if you're noticing early, that maybe things are starting to turn left when you expected them to go right. If you can pause, that gives you just that millisecond to put your foot in the door and decide what's really important to you here. How do you want this to go? Because it's easy to get caught up in the whatever comes next. And then all of a sudden you're both triggered and you fall off the wagon and it all goes badly and it's a mess. Right. And there is opportunity to, halt that progression toward badness. So pausing for yourself to decide, what do I want here? What's most important to me here? What are the outcomes that I would prefer here? Yes. (laughs) And try and get the conversation back on track. That's one thing, right? It's hard to do and it does feel uncomfortable to all your points before. So pause. And then my second pause is when we get to, or if we get back to there, asking more questions, If you've asked a question and someone has answered it, they are usually not done. And so they act like they're done. Uh Uh-huh. They talked and they spoke in relatively complete sentences and then they stopped Mm -hmm. as if they're waiting for you to continue. And right. The implication is that then it's your turn to talk and you should talk. Right. But often if you can manage not to fill the silence with whatever comes into your head next, they will say more. And letting them say more gives you more information to work with. It gives you more time to think to the point about stepping back yourself about how you'd like to respond. It slows down the pace of the conversation so that you both have more time to consider what you're saying and it makes them feel heard. So it's easy to get kind of caught up in the conversation and what you want to say next and say the thing And A, assume you've heard everything they had to say, but that can make them feel like you weren't really listening. It can feel like you're in a hurry. It can feel like you're interrupting. Sometimes we actually interrupt. We don't actually even wait till the end. They might still be thinking like maybe they're not done. It's easy to think they're done because they stopped, but maybe they're not. Usually I find people are not done talking. Today's show is brought to you by Vetex International. Now, are people the major pain point in your practice? If so, you're not alone. Over 90% of managers report staff problems to be their number one issue. At the root of this problem are usually three dysfunctions. A poorly articulated vision, toxic culture, or some form of leadership breakdown. If this sounds familiar, then do not despair. Help is at hand. I encourage you to check out Leaders, a veterinary-specific leadership training program 
where you will learn how to create and execute on a shared vision, how to hire well, and build a powerful, high-performance practice culture without all the drama. The class is accredited, delivered online, and open for applications now. To learn more, listen to a free training webinar, or apply, visit vetexinternational.com forward slash leaders. Okay, welcome back to the show. I hope you enjoyed part one. Let's get into some more meaty content to help you grow your practice in part two. This is tough because I feel like conversations are a dance. So maybe you have a client or someone you're not intimately familiar with. If you work with some all the time, the inclination might be, you've talked to this person so much, you know where this conversation's going. You know how they are. You know what bothers them and doesn't bother them. So we can just short circuit this. In this situation, I don't need to wait for, you're waiting, we're just going to truck this along. I know what the problem is. We're going to solve the problem. And you're just encouraging people to consider the possibility that in some of these situations, if they experimented with, if your inclination is to now start talking, you waited for them to finish, you think you know what the problem is, a pause. How long a pause? One second? Five seconds? How long is this pause? And then if the other person doesn't say anything, like what? I'm just giving worst case scenario. People are thinking, yeah. what happens if I sit here in a hard situation and I don't say anything? And then I feel like this person's waiting for me to say something, but I don't know what to say yet. I don't know. So yes, again, yes. It's very uncomfortable to stand in the silence. We don't have a lot of practice at it. And it gets better. Wait, in that conversation or it gets... It gets better over time as you practice letting the silence stand there. And I mean, you'll just feel less uncomfortable in the silence. And so, but yeah, that it feels, I mean, we've all seen it. We've probably all been there, right? Like that there's silence here. I'm going to say something because I just can't stand to let it hang there. And so I don't know how long you can stand it. So then I don't know how long to say to wait, but wait as long as you can stand it. <laughs> and then maybe it's just a little bit more, one more breath. And I, I, I just experiment it, with that, right? Like, yeah. It's probably particularly hard if someone is, someone's upset and they say something like, um, you really hurt my feelings. And that's the end. They put the period on and then they look as if they're waiting for you now to do what? Even if you know what happened or you know what caused it, even in that situation, Maybe that person would take that invitation to tell you more about why their feelings or tell you more about how they're feeling or start reflecting all the things that are in their head about what just happened that they didn't like. Maybe they'll just start saying them without you jumping in and saying, I'm really sorry. I didn't mean, I think I know what caused this. It was that I did this and I'm so sorry I did that and I shouldn't do that. I mean. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I'm going to add another layer to pause because of your example. Okay. Right. I'm going to try at least. So stay curious longer is another interpretation of that pause for me. Right. So they say you did such and such and such. Somebody did such and such and such. I'm hurt because such and such and such. This is unfair that such and such and such. And just like all the other things I say, there's a lot to unpack there. It's not yet time to respond to the whatever they said. We're not going to solve this yet. 
there are many questions to be asked before we actually apologize or solve or whatever it is that we're going to do. Right. But you could in there. So there are a couple of things that you could do in there. Ask another question, solicit more information and validate are the things that I would do in there. So you could validate. Thank you for being brave enough to say to me that you're upset. Thank you. Right. I haven't apologized. I don't know that I did anything wrong. I don't even know what they're mad about yet. Who knows? <laughs> right. right. But they are doing me the favor of being courageous about raising an issue that means a lot to them to my face. Right. And that's a favor. They're not telling everybody around me. They're, they're not acting out somewhere with a practice team or with a client. They came and said they're upset. Right. And so I'm going to say thank you. We're not assuming a public blow up. You're managing a public blow up and trying to guide someone into a more private conversation. We're kind of assuming you've sat down for something. Yeah, your example is a sit down so far, right? And I'm like, okay, we're sitting down and they're like in my face about something, possibly, right? Validate is one thing that I can do without jumping to conclusions or solutions, right? Can I ask you, maybe you've been in this situation already. You probably have because once upon a time you didn't validate and then you learned how to do it more often. If I'm not the person who validates, this has never come out of my mouth. When someone yelled at me about something and said I hurt their feelings or I did something wrong, my response is never to say, thank you for telling me this. I really appreciate it. That was very brave of you to tell me. If those words have never come out of their mouth, how is that going to feel when they try to do this? It's going to feel weird. Awkward, horrible. And you may have to, I mean, it took me a practice before I could do it consistently, right? And then still, I sometimes don't, right? This is the, what we said before, like, I'm so much better. I'm still not always capable of reaching into my toolbox and pulling out that tool. But I'm so much better than I used to be. And in difficult situations and in not difficult situations. So validation was not a go-to tool for me. I mean, not. And... I didn't think I needed that much validation. I didn't, I thought I was giving plenty of validation to other people. I think I'm nice, right? It feels corny. Aren't we all grown ups and we know we're all doing our best and we don't need to say, thank you for telling me that difficult thing. How often do I need to say to you? I mean, and the answer is far more often than you would think for almost everyone. Right. And it's far more meaningful than you would expect. And I mean, the key is to be authentic and to validate the right things. And all of that is about, I mean, that's hard to do too, right? Validating the right thing. But in this context that we're talking about, coming back with a response that's not a solution is the right first move probably because whatever you think your solution is may or may not be right because you haven't really done the diagnosis yet. So, I mean, let's pretend that as a pet, the pet comes in, the pet has itchy ears, you're sure you know why the ears are itchy, right? You still do a full exam, right? And that's kind of what I'm saying here. Let's not just say, this is what's wrong with the ears, right? Let's do a full exam and then say, what do you think about? So validation is one strategy there. Another strategy that you can use, and this is pretty easy, is tell me more. So somebody comes in and they're like, this and this and that and this and Sally and you did whatever, right? Yeah. One thing you could do is thank you. Thank you for bringing this to my attention. And the second thing is 
tell me more. <laughs> but I'm just buying myself some time, right? And I'm getting some more information, buying time and getting information, buying time and getting information so that I can be measured and thoughtful and well-informed in my response. If you generally try to grab the first set of data points and jump, because you've been through, again, you feel like you've been through this rodeo with this person before. If this person gets mad about a certain thing and you've done it 20 times through this, and now you're sitting down and having a calm conversation, normally just needle each other or irritate each other, and now you're having this conversation, there is the chance that even though you've been through this rodeo 20 times, either through your own reflection or their reflection, some new thing will come up. It's almost like you will have done a new test or noticed something new. Something new will come up, even though you feel like this is, we've already been through this. This is a three-step process. I do this, you do this, we irritate each other, we apologize, we move on. I do this, you do this, we irritate. Maybe there's an opportunity for learning if they did this pausing and gave each other time to sit for a bit. That's the reason to try something new, is that you have a repeating pattern that does not actually get resolved. If you are having conversations that you are tired of having, that's a reason to try another strategy. And that's why I was trying another strategy. I was having the same conversations and I was tired of them. <laughs> okay. The first one, pause. And you touched on the other ones, but I feel like we can still touch. This next one I thought was interesting because it was the listen deeper. So we, you talked about, we've talked about people are talking, they're pausing and giving each other more time to give information to each other and maybe say how they feel. But people say how they feel in their own words, in their own way. And sometimes if people aren't particularly good at picking up on the emotions, like someone says they're irritated, but actually they're furious, but they're not comfortable saying they're furious. Or they say they're furious, but you know they exact, they're not really, if you had to scale this on one to 10, you've seen them furious and you know they're not. How do you balance words and how do you pick up on emotions in a conversation? What have you done to learn to slow down and listen more? How does that slowing down and listening? What do you pick up on that otherwise you wouldn't because you're giving time to notice the emotions? So I'm going to back up a little bit from where the question came. I so, went, this happens all the time. I went too far. We need to go. Let's go back to the beginning. Yeah, I, I got to roll back just a little bit to get myself to a starting place. Yeah. So you kind of made the assumption in the way you asked the question that people are telling you in, in this exchange how they feel. And my experience is that that happens far more rarely. Like it's relatively unusual for me to have someone come up and say, this is how I'm feeling. And especially in the, in the workplace, but maybe everywhere, I'd have to think about that. But I mean, so I'm a manager and I'm running through my day and somebody comes up to me and we're going to say for our examples, right, with something that has some heat around it. Right. urgency or irritation or something, right? It's not my experience that they come in and say, I'm mad, right? Like it's more my experience that they'll come in and say such and such happened. Somebody did this thing. I have this problem. The doctor is mad at me. I can't do this thing. I've been asked. I mean, it's usually about the happenings and not about the feelings about the happenings. But the feelings about the happenings are around because you can feel it in the heat, right? Like, but the content of the message is not usually for me about that. And so that's part of what I'm saying. So my two word tip is listen deeper. 
if all you listen to is the words that go by, which I'm pretty cerebral, so that's where I tend to go is let me thank you for the information. Let me solve the problem. That's why I work on the coaching skills, right? Then if you're just paying attention to the words that go by and solving the problem in the words, then you're missing the problem in the heat and the problem in the heart. And that's what I'm saying is how could you pause and notice that and elevate that into the conversation? Because maybe that's really the problem. So so-and-so said such and such, so-and-so is mad with me, so-and-so I can't, so-and-so, whatever happens to be the content of the message, the what's going on here for you is really what we want to be addressing probably first. So you might observe, you seem to be quite upset. They might tell you more about that. (laughs) (laughs) I realize I jumped the gun because actually I'm probably, I'm probably sometimes overly sensitive to how people are saying things to me. I'm always trying to guess at their emotions. Whereas other people I see are taking in the information from the words and processing that and trying to figure out what to solve. If you come and say, we've done this 20 times. I can't do this the 21st time. They're saying they're frustrated. They're angry. Maybe they're sad. Maybe they're disappointed. There can be all kinds of emotions. I'm trying to grab that. But somebody else is like, you're right. We've done that 20 times. Let's solve the problem, right? We, there's no excuse for a 21st time. It's time to change the process right now. And they're not going to, right. They're not going to spend a few minutes asking that person who also didn't volunteer their emotions. As you said, that person may not be comfortable. So that's vulnerability. Something makes you sad or mad, unless that's a tactic you use all the time to get people to do things. You're uncomfortable. You're telling somebody something's bothering you and you can't do something about it or it's, I don't know, it's uncomfortable to talk about your feelings for some people to do that. And there are a lot of workplaces that don't encourage that. And a lot of people feel that it's not the place maybe to be talking about their feelings or that it's not professional to say that. Or as you said, they might be embarrassed or feel vulnerable about what they're feeling. They might not be able to, in fact, accurately tell you what they're feeling. So one of the base skills of emotional intelligence is accurately understanding what I'm feeling and why I'm feeling it in the moment. And it's the in the moment part that's particularly hard, right? (laughs) Right. And I mean, to your point, what might be presenting is angry, but what might be happening is fearful or feeling disrespected or something that has a lot more pain than anger usually does. And it might not be safe to say just at that moment without a little more work, right? Right. You know, are you afraid or are you feeling disrespected? And they might say no, right? Because they're not ready to say that or maybe don't know that yet. Or so that's what, I mean, it's tricky, right? This is all tricky. So my first step, which I mean, I'm never going to say that anything I give as an example is going to be perfect because I'm never sure ever that I've ever done a perfect conversation ever in my life, always just working at it. But you seem to be upset. Tell me more. They might tell you more about what they're upset about, or they might correct you. I'm not actually upset. I'm sad or I'm frustrated or, you know, they might tell you more about what they're feeling. And that still might not be the end answer, but it's safer to have them more often tell you how they feel 
if you don't handle it right, telling somebody else how they feel can really be a, a misstep. That wraps up today's episode of the Veterinary Business Success Show. It was an honor to share it with you. If you enjoyed it, we would love it if you leave a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts and tell your friends in veterinary medicine about us. Want a little more? You are in luck. An extended version of this podcast is available exclusively to our leaders community. You can learn more at vetxinternational.com. And until next time, I just want you to know, I appreciate you.